This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. What's good, fam? Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm Danny E.B., and bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, we have another special episode. and. This one is something that everyone can get involved in. So it doesn't matter if you're in an ED, whether you're in critical care, you're in medicine. This is something that's going to impact everyone. Okay. Today, we're going to be talking about treating the nastiest hospital. The worst thing that you can possibly expect when you're giving Vanxosin for 5,000 years. Uh, we're talking about C. diff, Clostridium difficile. And forgive me if I said that wrong, if you ID people out there. So, but don't worry, guys. You don't have me to listen to for this episode. You know how I do. If I don't know and it's something I do, unfortunately, I'm calling Elena. And Elena has to deal with all of my questions. And today, we're going to be talking about the management, particularly the inpatient management of C. difficile with not just my, my co-host, not just you know a phenomenal performance, but one of my good friends. Elena the Kilogram. So again, shout out to anybody who you want to give a quick little intro for those who haven't met you before. Well, thank you for that intro, Jimmy. But um, so me and Jimmy go way back from our PGY1 at Advent Health in Orlando. Um, I was lucky enough to do my PGY2 and ID at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. Um, I've worked for three years as a clinical specialist in ID and AMS. And now I am working as a clinical pharmacy coordinator for ID and antimicrobial stewardship at Methodist University Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. So let's go ahead and jump right into this. This is not going to be a long episode, guys, but I really want to just get right into the the, the, the genius. But before I do that, I was got to shout out a few things. Guys, if you're preparing for board, board certification, check out PACU Prep. I won't talk too much about, about that. BCEMP, BCPS, uh, BCCP, and a few things going to be coming up in the future. So go ahead and check that out. That's going to be in the show notes. Are unfortunate to not be at Empower RX conference, and you want to check us out, and you want to be part of something special. Go ahead and check out EmpowerRx.com and check out the the home study product that we have for you guys. Those are my two big announcements. Lastly. Actually, I should say three announcements. If you guys want to hear a particular episode or if you're intrigued with something, definitely let me know. Email me at farmsohard2019 at gmail.com or just write me on Twitter. I'm pretty sure you guys can find me there. So let's go ahead and do the episode. All right, Elena. So many of us have heard about C. diff since even before we got into pharmacy school. So I won't go back and cover a lot of the, the background stuff. I'm pretty sure that's something you guys weird for. I really want to get into these guidelines because realistically, it's some things that came out over the last few years that I remember texting you and saying like, do we really do this? So I want to really just jump right into this. What do the updated guidelines tell us we should be doing to treating C. diff? That's a loaded question, but take us away, please. So it is a very, very big topic to cover, and I want to do my best to kind of compare the difference between IDSA guidelines and what ACG or the American College of Gastroenterology is saying. They're pretty similar, but um, a little bit of differences to talk about. And so I'll start with just saying for a first episode of C. diff and a patient who we've never treated for C. diff before, as far as we know. Um, IDSA came out in 2021 in their updated guidelines and said fidaxomycin is the preferred first-line therapy for any episode of um, C. diff if this is our first episode. Um, and so this is really because of the reduced rate of recurrence, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, but IDSA is saying first-line fidaxomycin is our go-to. Um, they do say that you can use vancomycin as an alternative um, based on resources that are available. It's a reasonable alternative if this is a first episode of C. diff. Um, and then it says, you know, for our really resource limited settings, primarily not really things that we'll be dealing with in the U.S., but 
if both fidaxomycin and vancomycin are not available, we can use PO metronidazole. Um, we know it has a lower efficacy rate, so um, lower actual treatment um, success with metronidazole, um, as well as higher rate of recurrence, but it is an option as an absolute last line. Um, so then if we think about the ACG guidelines, they, for a first episode of C. diff, really list vancomycin and fidaxomycin, both with the same level of evidence, both as first-line options. Um, and then once again, metronidazole only if we don't have the other two as options. Metronidazole is trash. Flagyl is trash right now. So we're not going to be using that in the U.S. Again, no offense to anyone who only has that. Trash is better than nothing. So again, I just want to put that out there. And I remember the first time I saw this, and I was like, what is fidaxomycin? I've never heard that. And I'm like, why, why is that first line? And I'm pretty sure we can talk about it later on, but I, I was just intrigued when I first, the first time I actually sat down and looked at all of this, I was like, how is that over vancomycin? So uh, I thought that was cool. So for first line, first episode, I should say, kind of hit or miss, whether you're going to do fidaxomycin first line, but vancomycin seems to be, again, an alternative according to IDSA, and then it doesn't really matter for ACG. ACG. So did I get that right? Yeah. All right. So for a second episode, so this is our first recurrence of C. diff. Um, so once again, IDSA guidelines saying fidaxomycin is preferred over vancomycin. Um, and what they say is that this is also when we consider either a standard regimen of fidaxomycin or the extended pulse regimen. Um, and so when we're doing fidaxomycin as an extended pulse, instead of doing just BID dosing for 10 days, we do the BID dosing for five days, and then we do once every other day for 20 days. Um, so we're kind of tapering out the fidaxomycin, um, and we do have one clinical trial showing you know, good outcomes with using that regimen. Um, so then IDSA says as an acceptable alternative, not vancomycin standard, but vancomycin as a tapered pulse regimen. Um, and so there are some different methods of how to do that, but most people do the standard four times a day vanc for 10 to 14 days, then you cut it down to twice a day for a week, then daily for a week, and then you're going to go to every other day for varying times between, you know, three days all the way up to eight weeks, depending on um, your patient. Um, so then if we think about the ACG guidelines, what they recommend is either a taper pulsed vancomycin um, or using uh, fidaxomycin, if vancomycin was what you used for your original course. And this is also when, um, so at least IDSA guidelines start to bring in bezlituximab um, as one of our other options. So that's Zinplava, um, which we can talk more about a little bit later. All right, Elena. So we went through the first episode and the second episode. Unfortunately, if these patients are really sick, then we have to start thinking about what happens after. So greater than or equal than three episode, uh, episodes of C. diff. What do the guidelines say about that? Yeah, so that's our you know second recurrence, multiple episodes. Unfortunately, this does happen for a large number of patients. Um, and that's when, once again, IDSA is saying you can try a fidaxomycin, either standard or extended pulse regimen. Um, you can try a, a vanc taper again. Um, that's also when we bring in one of our older regimen options of vancomycin with rifaximin. Um, and that's also really when we should probably start to think about a fecal microbiota transplant. Um, and we'll talk through a little bit more of kind of the limitations of that and kind of really mostly access issues with getting an FMT. Um, and also when we should be thinking about bezlituximab as an adjunctive therapy. Um, so when we think about ACG, um, they kind of, this is when ACG really kind of deviates from IDSA a lot. And they're really saying, you know, obviously fidaxomycin and vancomycin have not worked as regimens. So really this is when we're just having a fecal microbiota transplant as our option, um, which I think is probably a little bit more realistic um, because we know that these other regimens have not worked and our patients are still having a recurrence at that point in time. Um, that's also when they do recommend that if you are going to treat, um, you could use bezlituximab as adjunctive therapy. 
right? So this is where kind of the, the big point, I'll take some notes there because this is where it seems that, again, most likely this is where I can see you guys getting called a lot more. Uh, again, I think sometimes people want to, the first episode, we can take care of that. Second episode, probably where you guys should be getting consulted to kind of to deal with this. Uh, definitely uh, when getting to greater than three episodes, it's like, hey, we need experts to come in and deal with this. And the guy, once again, really says differences. You can, it seems like IDS, they kind of goes with the, the standard therapies and adding on some stuff. And then ACG to say, you know, you know what? We're done with it. We're, we're done with the van. We're done with uh, Fidaxomycin. Let's just push very heavy for some of these other, other agents. Now, so that's greater than three. Talk about formant uh, management because, again, that can come and those can be ferocious. So talk to us about that. Yeah, so treating fulminate C. diff can be very difficult, um, and this is one area where we actually don't have much data with fidaxomycin, which I can talk through a little bit more later, um, but really guidelines just recommend um, that we're going to be using vancomycin at a higher dose, so we're going to be doing um, oral therapy unless our patients have an ileus um, or through an NG tube. Um, also, if patients do have an ileus, we can consider doing rectal vancomycin. Um, and then that's also when we're going to be considering IV metronidazole um, as well as an adjunctive therapy. Um, now, unfortunately, you can have some weird patient scenarios. Like I had a patient um, a couple weeks ago with fulminate C. diff with an ileus who was also neutropenic. So we didn't want to do rectal vancomycin. Um, so you can get into some weird situations and have to kind of um, try some different things, but usually those are going to be our main treatment options for fulminant C. diff. Um, and really, um, both IDSA as well as ACG kind of have very similar recommendations here. Um, but keep in mind, when it comes to our vancomycin, we are now using the higher dose. Um, so we're doing a 500 milligram dose four times a day instead of the standard 125 milligrams. All right. And I don't want to be too premature here. So we're, we're using some of these terms. Again, I don't, what's the objective term like fulminant? What does that mean for people? Because I, I don't think that everyone understands what that looks like. And I think you have to throw some things out there. Yeah. Um, so fulminant C. diff is a little bit different than, you know, so we have our standard C. diff, we can have severe C. diff. So that's patients who, you know, we're thinking maybe they have some sort of organ dysfunction based on the C. diff. So maybe they have an AKI and an elevated creatinine, or they have a really high white blood cell count. Um, but when we're talking fulminant C. diff, um, so these are our patients with profound hypotension, septic shock, um, they might have an ileus, um, maybe toxic megacolon. Um, these are patients with very advanced C. diff who are likely progressing towards the need of potentially a colectomy because of the severity of their disease. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. These patients are sick AF. And these are the ones that, again, you probably want to get some, some experts on board pretty quickly because it looks like we're starting to do a lot more stuff here. So that, that seems to be a good overview about, you know, the first, second, third, and fulminant episodes. We can dive a little deeper because, again, one of the big questions I had coming into this episode, and just in general, I remember, like, first time I was, like, writing questions for CDF, and I, I texted, like, what? Like, when did, we, when did we start doing this? And the big question I have, why would we expect, you know, fidaxomycin to have a benefit over vancomycin? And I, I just want to know, that was like the really big thing. That's the reason I want to see this episode, because I wanted you to really, you know, educate me on this particular topic. Yeah, so, um, so fidaxomycin is a new type of macrolide antibiotic. Um, and really, the benefit of it is that it has a more narrow spectrum of activity as compared to vancomycin. Um, so we know if we're thinking about the root cause of C. diff, so we're having patients who have a dysregulation in their GI microbiota. Um, so we normally have, you know, a lot of different flora in our GI tract. If this gets out of whack, then patients who have been exposed to C. diff and have C. diff colonized in their GI tract can have more expansion of an actual C. diff infection um, as it proliferates and starts to produce the toxin. Um, so with fidaxomycin, it has less collateral damage on our GI tract. 
So after treating the episode of C. diff, our patient doesn't have as much of damage to their GI flora. They're able to rebound a lot more quickly. Um, so if there is any residual C. diff in their GI tract, it's not going to take over and once again cause more disease. Um, also, some studies have shown from an in vitro perspective that fidaxomycin might be a little bit more bactericidal than vancomycin. Um, but really, when we look at rates of clinical cure um, and you know, treatment success with vancomycin versus fidaxomycin, that's not really what we see as far as vancomycin not performing as well as fidaxomycin. Um, it's really just that narrow spectrum of activity that's really allowing for less recurrence. Okay. So again, that's kind of the first thing that we want to look at, the fact that it's narrower and see that. But again, we, we, we want to I always say don't be a lexicon pharmacist because that makes perfect sense from like a pharmacology standpoint. And as you're looking at the spectrum activity, are there any cases with, with less clear of a benefit from fentanyl that What's like the total picture of all of this? Yeah, so we can talk through a couple different scenarios when maybe the data isn't quite as clear, but just to take a step back, so we have a couple clinical trials. I won't talk through all of the details on them, but there are a few clinical trials that led to IDSA putting out a new guideline. Um, so we had a, a guideline, I believe it was 2017, and then IDSA came right back in 2021 um, with the need for an update just based on the clinical data that was coming out. And so we had multiple clinical trials showing that when we were comparing patient outcomes on fidaxomycin compared to vancomycin, we were seeing similar rates of clinical cure, no difference there, but a significant reduction in recurrence. Okay. And so we know with C. diff, part of the overall response that we're looking for is not only clinical cure, but preventing patients from having another recurrence. That is really important here. And really, I would say in the scope of all infections, you know, the most likely that we're going to have a recurrence um, is really when we're talking about C. diff that really comes into how we're going to rank our therapy. Um, and so it also has led to kind of some changes in how clinical trials even um, do their primary outcomes. It's not only clinical cure with a secondary outcome of recurrence. Now it's just a sustained clinical response as more of a primary outcome that encompasses both the clinical cure and recurrence. Um, so we know that when it comes to fenaxamycin, there is a lower risk of recurrence. But some of these other patient scenarios that we haven't really talked about quite as much is how does this impact hospital care? Um, so one thing that I like to think about is, okay, fidaxomycin, the benefit it has is the lower um, risk of collateral damage because of the narrow spectrum of activity. So how does that really work in the hospital? So we know a lot of the patients that we're treating for C. diff who are admitted, um, they are on vancomycin, zosin, maybe they're on meropenem. Um, they could be on any sorts of things. A lot of the patients that I see in the hospital, they're being treated for maybe um, an acute osteomyelitis. They're going to need weeks and weeks of therapy, or maybe it's an endocarditis. They're going to be on vancomycin for six weeks. Six weeks. So at that point in time, is there really any benefit of using the fidaxomycin that has a more narrow spectrum of activity um, when we're going to be giving them something that's causing uh, you know, just as much collateral damage anyway? Um, so that is something that Really, I haven't seen a clear answer to in studies yet. Um, in the studies that we have so far, these clinical trials that really led to us knowing the lower risk of recurrence with fidaxomycin, um, they don't really very clearly delineate um, the risk of recurrence in patients who had antibiotics on at the time and what those antibiotics were. Um, so what we have is a couple studies who did break down the recurrence rate, um, but neither of them showed any statistically significantly lower risk of recurrence with fidaxomycin as compared to vancomycin. Um, so I don't think we have a clear answer for that yet. And I think that is what we see very, very often in the hospital as being an issue coming up. So do we want to spend 10 times as much money using fidaxomycin in this patient compared to vancomycin if it's not going to have 
a real clinical benefit. Okay. And that's something that's pretty cool because again, most of the time, this is what's happening. They're getting it because they're receiving, they're getting seeded because of a, a, a ton of antibiotics, but they may still need those. And I think one of the biggest interventions a single pharmacist is trying to do is get antibiotics off sooner. Well, I think the intervention that every other person as part of the team is trying to do to keep antibiotics off as long as possible. So just to make, that's something we have to really consider. And that's a, a huge difference for me because if the benefit is not in those patients, the ones that again, some of us see quite a bit of, then we, I think it's a more educated uh, recommendations we have whether to use one of these agents versus the other. So I think that's that's pretty cool. What about these patients that are in the more severe group like this, uh, the treatment in fulminant C. diff? So that is also a little more difficult to to kind of decide at this point. So there has been one retrospective analysis that looked at using fidaxomycin in fulminate C. diff and what those outcomes were. Um, They didn't compare it to patients with fulminate C. diff who received a different therapy. Um, So all we know is that the overall mortality in that cohort of, so it was around 85 patients um, who were received fidaxomycin for um, a fulminant C. diff episode, they had a mortality rate of 27% in that study. Um, So depending on the study and, you know, the population for fulminant C. diff, you could have a mortality anywhere from, you know, 15 to 30%. Um, So it really kind of depends on the study. And it's really hard to say, was that a decent mortality rate for this um, cohort of fulminant C. diff? It's hard to say. It kind of trends towards the higher rate of um, mortality in my mind. Um, And I don't think we really have enough data yet. So if I have a patient with fulminant C. diff, I'm not going to be going straight to fidaxomycin. I would be going to vancomycin at the higher dose, um, as well as IV flagell is really what I would be going to. Perfect. So it seems like you really have to look at this in a more careful way to figure out which therapy you're going to get, because it's not as clear cut, even if the guidelines recommend some of these things. I think when you get to your expertise and looking at these patients, every patient does not fit in that bucket. So I think that's pretty cool. So for the most part, I would say even in our time, these has been like the flagell, vancomycin, linfidaxomycin kind of came on board as being like the big three of C. diff treatment. Now, what about the other options uh, that are available for reducing recurrence aside from fidaxomycin? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So I think there are a lot of things that we should be thinking about for reducing recurrence in C. diff. I think number one is, you know, reducing the number of antibiotics that we're using. And that's something that every single pharmacist can strive towards every day, Um, you know, reducing our overall days of therapy. Um, Even if you can stop an antibiotic 24 hours sooner, that is less drug exposure that the patient will have and, you know, can overall reduce risk of recurrence. Um, Infection prevention, you know, everything from reducing unnecessary PPIs, um, isolation precautions on patients who do have C. diff or just, you know, in general, good hand hygiene. So any patients who are colonized with C. diff aren't transferring that to other patients. Um, So those are some of the kind of basics that, you know, we should always be thinking about. But when it comes to other treatment options, um, so really the best treatment option um, that we have is a fecal microbiota transplant. Um, So what we're doing is we're taking healthy donor stool and transplanting that into a patient who has had multiple recurrences of C. diff. So we are trying to actively fix their GI flora um, rather than just kind of trying to kill the C. diff. So we are trying to, you know, instead of just putting a Band-Aid on the situation, we're actually trying to heal the situation. Now, the problem comes in of access to an FMT. So really, this is primarily done in an outpatient setting. Usually, it's a gastroenterology provider who is doing this, not normally an infectious diseases provider. Um, So you have to have a GI doctor who is, you know, willing to do this procedure you have to have access to the donor stool, um, which is a weird thing to think about, but you know, it's <laughs> not always that easy to just get access to healthy 
stool to use in the donation process. Um, so I know historically, um, I've heard a lot about the GI providers just will test their own product um, and kind of uh, self-supply for their patients um, because they know that they can trust themselves to make sure that they're maintaining a healthy GI flora. Um, I don't know if I would want to look at my physician and know <laughs> where my treatment was coming from, but you know, if push came to shove, you know, um, we know that it has a high efficacy rate. Um, and then we have to think about how is it being administered? So there can be administration with frozen capsules, which the patient has to swallow. Um, I know that could cause a lot of distress from a psychological perspective. You know, the patient has to actively do it. Um, and it could be hard oh, to you know, swallow, <laughs> a very hard pill to swallow for sure. Um, it can be administered through an NG tube um, or through a colonoscopy um, is usually how it's administered. Wow. Um, so, you know, all of that could be different limitations and risks for the patient. Um, so a lot of different things to think about, a lot of costs associated with that. Um, but one really cool thing is that there are two new commercial products. Um, and I won't say the specific names. If anybody's interested, um, you should be able to find it pretty easily. But we have one that is a liquid product that can be used for rectal administration. Um, and then there is another just frozen capsule product that's now going to be commercially available. Um, so they are, you know, going to have a pretty significant price tag associated with them, but it does reduce the kind of limitations of access to uh, an actual product to use. Um, and I will <laughs> close out the FMT um, with a crazy story that I did hear um, in a recent conference about um, not only um, is it hard to get access to an FMT, but this has led to um, some YouTube videos, which um, nobody should try to find about how to give yourself an FMT at home. Um, so this has obviously been a long-standing issue of access, and hopefully these commercial products will reduce the risk of patients going to some of those extreme measures. Yeah, ain't that some shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Like, that in itself should be an episode because that was some of the most interesting stuff I've ever heard in my life. Imagine how much these poop capsules are going for in the black market. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. actually, um, so you can, um, if anybody is interested, I think you can get about $500 potentially um, donating your own product um, to some of these companies that are making the commercial products. So if anybody's looking for some side cash... I mean, that's better than plasma and giving blood. Like, hey, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what it is. So again, we found you guys and not only you listen to a great podcast, but we just gave you a new side hustle that pays you probably as much as we're getting a day for donating something you're doing, you should be doing once a day anyway. So shout out to Atlanta for putting us on. Everyone get out. I'm going to clip this up so you know you guys are going to see this. So, all right. What else do we have when it comes to our treatments? So what we do have is kind of an adjunctive therapy, um, and that is Vezlituximab or Zinplava. Um, so that is an IV um, monoclonal antibody that's targeting toxin B that is produced by C. diff. Um, so this is not an active therapy. This is an adjunctive therapy that can help produce uh, reduce the risk of recurrence. Um, so patients still need to be treated with vancomycin or fidaxomycin, um, but they can receive this one-time dose of bezlituximab. Um, it targets toxin B, binds to that, reduces the risk of an active episode with C. diff in the future. Um, so this was shown in two clinical trials to have a significant reduction in rate of recurrence. Um, but some limitations that we have to consider with this treatment option. So it has to be given during active C. diff therapy. Um, so not only can that be confusing, but also um, can have some logistical concerns. So if you have a patient who is receiving their full course of C. diff treatment inpatient, um, you do have to administer that drug inpatient, which is an additional cost. Um, what I typically try to do whenever I am 
um, recommending bezlituximab for patients is administration in our infusion center. Um, so that doesn't rack up more inpatient costs for the hospital. Um, and you're still able to get patients this as an option for therapy that will reduce their risk of recurrence. Um, but in general, we do still have to consider that there is to this date low rates of insurance coverage for this product, um, and it is a couple thousand dollars. Um, so something to consider as far as whether or not patients can afford it or if they can have access to it. Yeah, that's tough. We they what they can do if, if they can get their friend to just donate, you know, two, you know, samples for the for the for the capsules, then I think they'd be able to pay for that. Yeah, that's a good option. So what's the deal? We've heard about this quite a bit for a long time. What's the deal about probiotics? Like really give me the lowdown when it comes to does this actually help anything? Oh, geez, we could have a whole episode about how much I do not like probiotics. But <laughs> um, in general, I think the number one benefit of probiotics is the placebo effect. Um, so we have to date found no evidence that probiotics can reduce the risk of C. diff. Um, so that has not been proven in any clinical trials. And there have been so many studies who have looked at this topic. I mean, anytime you can do a simple intervention and have it reduce the risk of a, a serious disease, you know, I would be all for that. But we really don't have any evidence that probiotics can do this at this point in time. There has been a clinical trial, I would say, that showed a reduction in antibiotic-associated diarrhea, but not a reduction in C. diff. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. So we're adding an additional cost, an additional drug that has to be administered um, for potentially no clinical benefit. Um, and also, we have to think about that there is a risk of adverse effects for patients. Um, so particularly our neutropenic patients, um, patients with pancreatitis. Um, so there have been some, you know, different studies who have shown the risk of actual disease caused by um, probiotic administration. So if we're giving a probiotic product that has, say, lactobacillus, um, there has been evidence that this can cause an actual bacteremia with lactobacillus. Um, so really, you're giving your patients a risk for no, you know, significant benefit that has been seen. Um, and so actually, for some of the products that have Saccharomyces, um, so what can happen is it can actually cause a false positive and a fungitel result. Um, so because you're giving them um, a probiotic product that has a yeast in it, um, and fungitel, it's looking for, you know, beta D-glucan, which is in the, you know, cell wall of our um, fungus, our yeast primarily, um, it can cause a false positive result. Um, and while there hasn't been a specific study that has proven this, um, it is something that I've discussed with the Fungitel uh, company. And they think it's very plausible that if there is any, you know, um, any amount of um, the Saccharomyces getting into their bloodstream, it could um, cause a false positive result. And that's something that I have seen in one of my patients. And that is what we think as the most likely cause for that positive fungitel. Yeah, that's that's actually intriguing because you, you really get to the point where it's like, is it worth all the trouble? And I remember when we was in residency, people swore by probiotics. That was like some would get upset if if it wasn't added on. So I mean, it really is not as beneficial as I thought. And maybe I was just being a Lexi pharmacist when when, when that happened. So we, we kind of walked through Fidaxomycin, really talking about reoccurrence and figuring out what options do we have. And it seems like we have a little bit more than than I initially thought. Now let's move to some things that actually actually often. What are some barriers to, to care that you've seen for hospitalized patients getting treated for C. diff? You mentioned a little bit of it, uh, but can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so a lot of this is going to come down to insurance coverage, and that can you know vary by state, vary by you know the city you're in and the hospital you're in within the city. I know um, at my particular institution, we have a lot of uninsured patients, a lot of uninsured patients. 
Um, and so with some drug companies, be it fidaxomycin um, or whatnot, you can get potentially drug assistance for patients who are uninsured. Um, so I would say always check and see um, with each drug company if you're using a branded product, um, you know, if that is a potential option. Um, but fedaxamycin coverage has been an issue for years. I think with the update in the IDSA guidelines in 2021, it has led to a shift in that area. And so more and more insurances are putting fedaxamycin as a preferred option. Um, but a lot of them still are either requiring a prior authorization, which we know sometimes it's hard to get physicians to complete. Um, and sometimes it's required for patients to have failed treatment with vancomycin prior to having the fedaxamycin covered. So that can cause a lot of issues because if we think about it, you know, we know that the benefit of fedaxamycin is redu reducing the risk of recurrence because of the, you know, lower collateral damage in the GI tract. So if we're going to treat our patients who are hospitalized with fedaxamycin, but they can't afford it at discharge and we're going to send them out on vancomycin, are we really getting any clinical benefit of the fedaxamycin at that point in time? So if we're ending the therapy on vancomycin, that's going to be causing collateral damage at the end. And really, that's probably what is going to give us, you know, more impact on the rate of recurrence is what they would end on. Um, so in general, that's something that we try to work through at our institution is making sure as soon as we are going to start a patient on fedaxamycin, that we're thinking through some of those, those issues at that point in time. Um, so access to things like bezlituximab can be difficult. Um, so whether or not you have an infusion center that you have available at your institution to send people to can be a barrier. Um, also, we do have some home infusion companies who we have found who will go put in a peripheral in the patient's home, administer the dose of bezlituximab since it, it is just a single administration, and then, you know, just take the peripheral out and leave. Um, so instead of the patient even having to go to um, an infusion center. Um, so you could always check and see if that is a potential option in your area. That would be dope. Like, again, just for that and a few other things, like I can go on a tangent if I, if I had access. Um, again, you did a, lot, a lot of this before, so I won't uh, go on forward now. But now that we're getting these patients again, they can't afford it. Again, should we be administering some of this stuff inpatient? You, you mentioned the fact that we can give, um, we can give some uh, basically map as an outpatient. Should we just try to give vaccomycin inpatient? Like, is that is that a deal? If we know they're going to get discharged soon. Um. So if we know that they can get fedaxamycin at discharge, then we know that, you know, that could be beneficial. Um, but um, one interesting thing is, so with bezlituximab, the studies who looked at clinical efficacy with bezlituximab, patients were either receiving vancomycin or metronidazole. Um, so we mm -hmm. actually don't have any data for the combination of fedaxamycin and bezlituximab. Um, so we don't know if a patient received Fedaxamycin for their course of therapy, does bezlituximab still reduce the risk of recurrence or is fedaxamycin all you need? Um, we don't really have an answer to that at this point in time. Um, I'm hoping with more and more just routine use, we'll have at least some retrospective studies that do look at patients who received both the fedaxamycin for treatment as well as bezlituximab as an add-on. Okay. That, that makes sense. Again, they're both newer, newer drugs. They have to be studied independently of, of each other. So we we talk about this, but as I'm thinking about all this a little bit more, one of the issues is that what happens, like how how do you order all of this and how do we really assess? And I really want to know how can clinicians really optimize the process for CDF testing and reporting of the result? How can we get better at that? Yeah, so this is something that I always like to think through from an antimicrobial stewardship perspective, um, is really how can we make our computer systems and everything work easier for all of us? Um, so I know you being in the ED, you are doing 50 million things throughout the day. You don't have a lot of time to think through what's going on and 
you know, try to really interpret a lot of these things on the fly. Um, and so I think what can be really important is making sure that our actual testing results really help people know what to do. Um, so when it comes to CDF testing, so most places are using a PCR test, which tests for the presence of C. diff as the organism, um, and also tests for production of toxin B. So we want to know, is C. diff there? And then also, is the toxin being produced? And so that can tell us a lot of different things. So if the organism is there, all we really know for sure is that the patient is colonized with C. diff. If they are also having toxin production, then we know that that is an active C. diff infection. And so that is really important to know. And I think it can definitely confuse clinicians. Um, so I know like hospitalists or people who are not trained in ID as their, you know, primary um, specialty might not think through, okay, this says C. diff is positive. So it seems like just C. diff is positive. Um, but just the presence of C. diff as the organism um, does not mean that the patient has active C. diff as an infection. Um, so what we have done to optimize our C. diff testing results is to add a comment that specifically states suggestive of C. diff infection if the results are positive for both the organism gene as well as the toxin. Um, or if it's just positive for the organism and the toxin production is negative, um, having a comment stating suggestive of colonization with C. diff rather than true infection. So really, you're having the result kind of tell you what to do. Of course, always clinical correlation is needed because these tests are not 100%, um, but it really can help kind of guide appropriate therapy and when we can really, you know, stop the PO bank or fidaxomycin because we know that it's not an active infection. Um, another interesting thing um, that we can do is, so some of our new testing is showing, so C. diff strain 27, um, which is something we haven't talked about, but this is a new strain that's becoming predominant in the U.S., and we know that this particular strain has a higher risk of recurrence. Um, and so that can also, you know, tell us how much are we worried about the risk of recurrence in this particular patient. Um, but interesting side note, we don't really know based on kind of the subpopulations of the clinical trial data that we have, um, if fidaxomycin has a clinical benefit in reducing recurrence in strain 27. Um, so hopefully we'll get some more data in that area going forward, but at least from a perspective of stratifying risk of recurrence for patients, if you have strain testing available, that could be helpful. Um, so one other thing I like to do is work on alerts to pharmacy. Um, so we know our clinical pharmacy team is always working over time to make sure that we are responding to anything that we can. Um, and so what I did at um, some other institutions that I've worked is worked on automatic alerting that can tell us about, you know, discrepancies in the results and what we're doing. So you can actually set up alerts, especially in Epic, that will say, okay, we had a C. diff negative test but the patient is on active PO vancomycin or fidaxomycin, it sends an alert to pharmacy. We know that we can reach out and make a recommendation. Um, you can also have alerts for a positive C. diff result and the patient is not on active PO bank or fidaxomycin. Um, so just different things to kind of help us throughout the day to make these really important interventions, but also not spend all of our time combing through all of these results. Um, so another thing that I like to have set up um, at my institution is working with case management. Um, so making sure that as soon as we are starting patients on fidaxomycin, um, or as soon as we might think about using bezlituximab for our patients, we're working on that insurance coverage process and making sure that we know ahead of time um, what we're dealing with there. Yeah, it's the big thing I think maybe underutilized a relationship that I was able to be part of with Dalvance and our Vacta uh, is making sure that we have this cover and we know that we have some help on the paperwork and get those things taken care of. We can really start focusing very heavily just on the patient versus all the other uh, loops we have to jump through. Now, the big thing that everyone is going to access, you know, 
Okay, Jim, what are most facilities using for first-line therapy for those non-severe episodes of C. difficile? Because again, both big one and bank of my stood up there, but what are most people actually doing? So you would think, you know, based on the new guideline coming out and it's saying that fidaxomycin is preferred first-line therapy, um, that most hospitals would now be using fidaxomycin first-line. Um, and I will say that a lot of facilities have switched over, but it is difficult. Um, so we have a lot of pressure from, you know, upper level management in the hospital to keep drug costs down. Um, and so unfortunately, from a pharmacy budget perspective, um, it's a little difficult to say that across the board, we're going to switch over to using fidaxomycin for every single patient um, because we're going to get, you know, a lot of flack from our VP of, you know, why did the pharmacy spend go up so much? Because um, we are talking, you know, maybe $100 for a course of therapy versus thousands of dollars for a course of therapy um, between these two therapies. So um, it is a, a difficult thing to implement. Um, and a lot of facilities have worked through the idea of, you know, looking at this from a holistic approach of, you know, we are spending a little bit more on the drug itself, but we are reducing an entire episode of C. diff potentially, which is you know, $10,000, $20,000 at least um, for each admission that is going to happen for a patient with a C. diff episode. Um, so if you can talk through some of those things with um, your hospital leadership, that can make it a little bit easier. But to my knowledge and of the hospitals that I know in Tennessee, at least, um, facilities are still using vancomycin as preferred therapy. Um, and reserving fidaxomycin for patients who have a higher risk of recurrence. And so we can talk through some of that a little bit more about what that might look like. Yeah. So it sounds like, again, everyone needs to kind of put pieces together and all, with all this information, I think to get everyone on the same page, it looks like we need some type of treatment algorithm. Uh, Again, I think that could help, but can you kind of walk us through how a treatment algorithm can actually help us with this? Because I think sometimes we don't think outside the box, and I'm pretty sure it's more things than than one that can be useful for kind of creating something like this. And pharmacists are usually pretty involved in the creation of things like this. Yeah, and so there have been different proposed treatment algorithms that I've seen. Um, there was a nice study that just came out a month or two ago by McDaniel and colleagues. Um, and what it looked at was implementing a C. diff treatment pathway and how that would impact, you know, um, efficacy rates as well as overall costs for their hospital. Um, and so they did a good job of explaining the way that they really stratified these patients. So what they did was looked at a risk of recurrence, and they um, define this as an age over 65, um, systemic antibiotics at the time. PPI use, renal insufficiency, any history of cancer, or a prior episode of C. diff. And so they use this to either determine, okay, if none of these apply, patients get vancomycin. If some of this does apply, then they get fidaxomycin. And what they saw in this study is an increase in clinical cure, increased sustained response, less C. diff recurrence, and decreased overall treatment costs when factoring in um, what I was talking about before of, you know, what is the cost of an entire episode of C. diff treatment? What is the cost of a length of stay for C. diff? Um, but it is important to note that for this particular study, what they looked at was essentially in the pre-period 50-50 for metronidazole and vancomycin. And then in the post-period, 50-50 for vancomycin and fidaxomycin use. So really, this study shows us the shift of using uh, metronidazole to using fidaxomycin. Um, so it's not really a comparison of bank versus fidaxomycin, but it does show us that you can still have a good clinical impact and still use vancomycin for half of your treatment population. Um, and so what I will say is that um, my particular institution has a very similar treatment algorithm. It's not exactly the same, um, but we're also looking at age, um, elevated creatinine, 
Um, we're looking at severity of the episode. So how many bowel movements are they having per day? Um, do they have some sort of GI disease like ulcerative colitis or irritable bowel disease? Um, are they immunocompromised um, or like receiving an immunocompromising medication? So we're looking at kind of like risk of recurrence of C. diff as well as immunocompromise and risk of severe um, disease all at the same time. So um, we're using those factors for determining if we're going to use vancomycin or fidaxomycin for our treatment option. Um, so, so far, I would say it's had um, pretty good um, adoption at our institution so far, um, but we haven't done an official study to get some specific numbers to share with you quite yet. Yeah, and it seems like even based off those risk factors, you would get a particular particular set of medication and, and and go from there. So I think that I think that's what we need. And I think that if these can be built into Epic, it really helps out as well. So that way you can kind of click through a lot of these things at, as you get ready to order it. But I, I think that kind of brings us to a, a nice little point. And we really kind of covered all of the, the questions that I had coming into this episode. And I just want to say again, thank you for coming on. Can you give us like, you know, a high level you know, summary of the things that, you know, we talked about today or any, any closing remark that you have? So I would say in general, we know fidaxomycin is going to have a lower risk of recurrence. That's pretty clear in the studies that we've seen so far, but um, just trying to think a little bit further about um, how can we still use fidaxomycin, but um, kind of rein in our pharmacy spending and try to think um, from a stewardship perspective of for our specific patient populations in the hospital, is it always going to have a clinical benefit? I mean, I don't know that it always will. Um, a lot of our patients that we're treating in the hospital are going to have, you know, potentially fulminant C. diff where we don't have a lot of data for fidaxomycin. Um, maybe they're on systemic antibiotics. We don't really have an answer to that point yet of um, if they're on systemic antibiotics, is that going to really see a benefit with fidaxomycin as compared to VANC? We don't really know at this point in time, um, but we just try to do the best as we can of potentially stratifying our patients based on their risk of recurrence for C. diff um, and you know, using that to help us decide between vancomycin and fidaxomycin for treating inpatient. Um, also, you know, working with case management as much as you can to check on insurance coverage before we are starting patients on fidaxomycin inpatient, um, since really we're not expecting to see any clinical benefit of using it if we have to send them home on vancomycin for most of their treatment course. That sounds like a plan. I you know, thank you again for, for coming on. And it really kind of helped help me understand some of these things a little bit more. Because again, in my mind, it's like, okay, vancomycin, um, vancomycin for C. diff and that's that. And if they come back, we can just give a bigger dose or give a longer dose, a longer, longer dosing um, period. But it, it does really depend on the, on the patient a little bit more of those patient details. So I'm uh, pretty thankful about that. Um, again, we're going to be doing ID all month. And I think this is going to be like the Farm So Hard official month of ID. So if you're noticing, man, there's like four episodes of Farm So Hard content. I can do it for a whole year and still never come close to what ID needs. So just trying to do a little bit of our justice because the one thing that we all are are ID pharmacists and we're all stewards. So we can't all be ED pharmacists. Uh, but again, we can all play a part in being uh, antimicrobial stewards. And we all do vancomycin consults. We all do all of these things that I think we're all part of it. So I really wanted to dive deep into some of these topics that I thought I knew a small amount about and get an expert to come on. So Elena, thank you again for, for coming and sharing with us. Uh, thank you guys for listening to another episode. And as you guys, you know, we're going to put all this stuff in the show notes and check out Packy Prep, check out Empower, and we're going to close out the same way we do all the time, guys. You really, you really don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. <laughs>